she she was really lovely, um, really kind. So she was already at such a young age. She had what I call quite a lot of empathy, and she would be concerned about other people. And what I mean by that is, I can remember her saying about her asthma, not that she wanted to ha- happen to her but she was quite relieved it wasn't happening to anybody else. And I think that's quite a thing to um, say at such a young age. Welcome to LSE IQ. I'm Sue Windybank, and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. You've just heard the words of Rosamond Adu Kissy Deborah co-founder of the Ella Roberta Family Foundation, which she set up after the death of her daughter in 2013. A previously active little girl, Ella died at just age nine from a rare and severe form of asthma. The foundation named after her aims to improve the lives of children affected by asthma in South East London by campaigning for better treatment of the condition and for clean air. Her mum still lives along the road that I'm standing on, the busy South Circular, a pollution hotspot which forms part of a major ring road around London. I live along this road too, and like Ella, I have asthma. Although mine is under control, sometimes I find myself gasping for air and I wonder about the impact the road outside my house is having on my health. There is growing awareness and mounting evidence of the impact that air pollution is having on all of us, including perhaps making us more susceptible to COVID-19. In this episode of LSEIQ, I ask, how can we tackle air pollution? I asked Rosamond when Ella started to become unwell. She told me that the first signs appeared on a trip to the Monument, a historic London landmark with 311 steps to its top. It may have been a bit longer, but when it first manifested itself to us was during the half term in October. I think where we went for the half term, the Monument and I think we can admit that even fit and able people might struggle to climb that. And as she began to climb it, she sort of said she was struggling. But because she had a cold, you can imagine what I first thought. I thought that's why she was saying what she was saying, but not really. That really was the beginning of of the end, really, because she never... She had moments in 2012 of being well during the Olympics. And you kind of got this really great feeling because she was um, she was feeling well. And we suddenly thought, oh, my God, is this it? And then, unfortunately, September of 2012, she became ill again. So she never really 101% ever recovered, no. She used to have these, um, when I say dramatic seizures, what I mean by that is if she had had one on the street, and nobody was there, they might have assumed she had epilepsy. And this would always start off with a cough. So Ella wouldn't just walk around and have a seizure, no. She would always have um, these 
sort of this coughing fit, as we call it. So if you imagine a smoker who smoked for years and they have a continuous cough, that's what it was like. So that was always a sign that, uh uh-oh, she's about to have. But it wouldn't always end in that. It would sometimes resolve itself. But they were very, very unpleasant. On February 15, 2013, Ella was looking forward to going to her primary school disco the next evening and choosing her outfit. Tragically, a few hours later, she suffered an acute asthma attack which took her life. What led you to believe that Ella's death was related to air pollution? I didn't. She was incredibly fit and healthy and she became so chronically ill to the point she was on the other extreme. My instincts as a mother and, I don't know, my intuition told me there had to be an explanation. I think if you have, if, if, if your child is born with a disability, um, then that's different. Yes, it is a struggle. Um, but if you have a very healthy child and suddenly they become ill, I couldn't really accept that there was no reason. There had to be a reason. You've campaigned for and you've been successful in getting a new inquest opened into Ella's death. What do you hope this will achieve? I think to have something listed officially on a death certificate becomes even more real, if you see what what I mean. And I think it is only right that the real cause of why she became ill or contribute, whatever way you want to put it, is actually put on her death certificate. I mean, what it has on there now, which I'm not going to mention, but it has what I would say a generic term. And a generic term tells you nothing really about what happened to her really and I think I was very very I think shocked to find out that okay although it's never been listed on anyone's death certificate but seven million people die each year both indoor and outdoor I might stress due to air pollution. Pollution has become a silent killer stalking people outside and even inside their homes. From exposure to smog from industry or traffic fumes to smoke from cooking. The World Health Organization says 7 million people die from air pollution every year. This World Health Organization figure is an estimate of how many people die prematurely every year from outdoor and indoor pollution worldwide. In the UK, a 2016 report published by the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, estimated that every year around 40,000 deaths are attributable to exposure to outdoor air pollution alone. This is the figure that Rosamond is about to mention. I would go to conferences and they would, and it's not their fault, the people who study in this area will say, 40,000 people a year die from air pollution. And I noticed they were sort of a little bit disengaged from it. It was a bit like they were just talking about figures. And I think some people may accuse some of the scientists now of doing that, the way they just roll out these um, figures. And I think for me, 
who had been through what I went through. I just couldn't believe it. They just mentioned 40,000, like they were mentioning the number four. And I thought, oh my God, it's not just 40,000 as a one-off, it's 40,000 every year. And that is a lot of people. The government agency Public Health England has called air pollution the biggest environmental threat to health in the UK. But what is air pollution exactly? I asked Tom Smith, Assistant Professor in Environmental Geography at LSE. When we think about air pollution, we might think about it in terms of two different kind of categories of, um, of pollutants. One are particulates, so these are solid or liquid droplets that are suspended in the air. We might call them aerosols. And they are small particles that can be breathed um, into the body. Particulate matter, PM. And we can categorize these into different size fractions. That's what the scientists would, would use. Uh, PM10 being particles that are 10 microns across or finer. And they can get into the respiratory tract or PM 2.5, which are only 2.5 microns ac across, much smaller, and they can get into the lungs and into the alveoli. So that's your particulate matter. The other component of air pollution are the gases. So these are molecules of gases floating around in the atmosphere that can again cause harm to humans through um, chronic, um, chronic health effects, to do with the lungs and the heart, but also acute effects as well. So these gases might include um, some of the familiar ones, not nitrogen dioxide, which we know um, comes from cars, but also sulfur dioxide, um, carbon monoxide, another familiar pollutant, and ozone as well. Ozone at ground level is considered a, a, a pollutant. When we get a warning, perhaps on a weather report, that there's going to be a high pollution day in London, what are they talking about in that instance? So for air pollution forecasting, they might take into account different air pollutants, not just particulate matter, but they'll be looking at levels of, of particulate matter and also these other gases as well. And they usually calculate something called the air quality index or an AQI. Now, different uh, nation states have different ways of calculating this. The, the US version is different to the Chinese version. Um, but generally, this will um, equate to uh, a certain level of these different pollutants and each one of these pollutants has a, a limit um, delimited by either the World Health Organization or um, the European Union. So what kind of levels might we see in a city like London for example? Well on a good day and uh, London has quite a lot of good days um, we might be looking at particulate matter concentrations of maybe five or six micrograms per meter cubed and that's pretty safe. Um, when it gets to about 10, um, that, that kind of raises some concerns. Uh, and on extreme days, we might see something up to maybe 100, but that's quite rare. Um, and normally that would be under conditions where the, um, the particulate matter is coming from outside of London. There might be desert dust from the Sahara. Um, sometimes we even have episodes where there's smoke coming from fires in Canada, um, for example. London might experience an AQI of above 100 on a few occasions a year, maybe once every couple of years um, for some of these pollutants. Uh, but in cities like uh, Delhi, for example, um, frequently experiencing very high pollution episodes that affect the whole population. Um, often these pollution episodes are associated with very different sources of air pollution to what we have in London. Generally, London's pollution comes from routine sources such as traffic mostly, 
whereas some of the other cities across the planet have these seasonal episodes associated with other forms of air pollution, um, such as pollution from fires on agricultural land or deforestation fires upwind of the cities. And what kind of impacts does air pollution have on people? So the most immediate impact is on a population who have pre-existing conditions, particularly lung conditions or respiratory problems, people with asthma. They're normally the first people to really feel um, the effects of a, a bad air pollution episode. Beyond the kind of acute effects on people with pre-existing conditions, um, there are the longer term exposure impacts, the chronic impacts of air pollution. Um, this includes the more obvious ones such as lung cancer, but other, other uh, problems include uh, pulmonary disease, heart-related problems um, that are associated with longer-term exposure to these gases and particulates. Alongside its debilitating impact on health, air pollution has been shown to have more insidious effects. Dr. Sefi Roth, Assistant Professor of Environmental Economics at LSE, has done research looking at some of these impacts. You've done some research on how air pollution is related to poorer performance um, by students taking exams. What did you do and what did you find? So uh, I did several studies on the link between uh, air pollution and, and education. Uh, the first study is a joint work with uh, Avi Ebenstein and Victor Lavi, where we examined the effect of exposure to ambient pollution, uh, PM 2.5 to be more specific, on student performance in standardized exams uh, in uh, Israel. Now, the big challenge was to ensure that our estimate uh, in this uh, study, uh, the link that we find, is uh, indeed uh, causal and not just uh, correlation. So how did we do that? Uh, first, we got data on the universe of Israeli test takers during the years 2000-2002, uh, where we observe pollution levels and educational outcome for over 400,000 subject examination. Second, we overcome uh, confounding factors uh, by looking at, at within student variation. So we didn't compare uh, student X with student Y. We compared the same students with itself over time, taking different examination, being subject to different uh, level of uh, pollution. Overall, we find that taking an exam on a polluted day, uh, which we define as an air quality index of more than 75, um, or uh, 23.5 uh, units of, of PM2.5 was associated with 3.2% decline in a student test score. So uh, we're talking about a very, very significant effect on, to, on student test score, not just, not just statistically, but also uh, economically. We also examined the long-term consequences of the short-term exposure to ambient uh, air pollution. So more specifically, we study how this short-term exposure affect post-secondary educational attainment and earning of the same test-taking students during adulthood. The results showed that those students who set exam on high-pollution days had lower chance of obtaining a place at the university compared with their uh, unaffected counterparts and completed fewer years of post-secondary education. Uh, we also find that short-term exposure to as little as additional 10 units of PM2.5 during this exam is associated with a 2.1% decline in monthly earning in adulthood. So we're talking about something like 8 or 10 years after the actual 
event after they were exposed to pollution, we still find very, very significant results from their uh, education and also earnings. So you've also done some research on criminality and air pollution. What did you find? So in another study, we uh, also examined the link between air pollution and crime. We did actually here uh, in London, and we found that there is a strong positive causal relationship uh, between the two. Now, we did it by analyzing data on air pollution and more uh, than 1.8 million uh, crimes that happen over uh, two years. And we use a variety of statistical techniques to ensure that our results are robust and uh, we want to identify again is a causal link. And let me explain maybe one of the techniques that we use because I think it's, it's, it's quite cool, at least to me. So one of these techniques used the fact that the wind randomly blows uh, to different direction, bringing pollution to different parts of the city at random. So imagine that there is a cloud of pollution that moves according to the direction of the wind, which again, let me emphasize, is random. Uh, we essentially follow this cloud of pollution and look at what happened to this area which received this cloud of pollution. What we find uh, is that wherever the cloud goes, crime goes up as well. Um, so we use this kind of random assignment uh, almost uh, that's been uh, induced by the wind direction in our favor uh, to test whether air pollution causally affects crime. And we find this is uh, indeed uh, the case. We find that air quality index of uh, 35, which is not uh, very high, lead to 3.7 uh, present more crimes uh, in uh, the areas that are uh, affected, um, which is uh, similar to uh, the effect of 10% decrease in police activity, according to another study that also happened in London. So we're talking about a very, very significant increase in crime uh, as a result of not very high level of pollution. Did it have an impact on certain types of crime? So we find that uh, air pollution affects a variety of uh, crimes. Some of them are violent crime or even sexual crime, uh, but we also find uh, the temperature affects more uh, economically driven uh, crime. So uh, we really find that the effect is across the board uh, when it comes to air pollution. I mean, this seems pretty unbelievable. What, what do you think is going on? There is a variety of possible explanations for uh, the relationship that we find between crime and air pollution. Uh, one possible explanation is the effect of air pollution on, on a stress hormone that's called cortisol, uh, which uh, in, in turn can lead to a change in behavior and uh, the way that we think. So uh, again, the exact mechanism on how air pollution affects uh, crime is still uh, unknown. Uh, several theories, um, including the cortisol uh, that I mentioned uh, before, but this is still a work in progress and I think that more research is needed here to nail down the exact mechanism here. Where does air pollution come from? Unsurprisingly, in cities like London, most comes from road traffic, with diesel vehicles being more polluting than petrol ones. The way we heat our homes and offices and other commercial spaces is also a major problem. But Tom Smith has looked at a more unexpected source of air pollution in the city. You've done some research on the levels of um, pollution on the London Underground. What did you find? The London Underground is another one of these really interesting places. We're, we're very familiar with um, air pollution at the surface 
from transport, from cars. Most people would not associate the London Underground with being a particularly polluted place, or at least they didn't until recently when our research was published, along with a couple of other papers last year. Um, we found very high levels of particulate matter on the London Underground, 20 to 25 times the levels that we see at the surface, for example. Particulate matter, PM2.5, the particles that can get inside your lungs, get inside the alveoli of your lungs. And um, we found that the further into the network you go, um, the worse it gets, particularly the deep uh, London Underground lines, like the Bakerloo line and the Central line. We found that the shallower lines, the district line, the circle line, are less polluted, mainly because they have a better exchange of air um, with, with the above-ground um, sections of those lines. Uh, and we also find that once you get out of the network, um, levels very quickly plummet down to kind of background urban pollution levels. Um, another piece of research that was published last year at King's College London actually looked at the composition of the particles. Now, that's very important because different... Um, chemical compositions will have different effects on the human body. Um, carbon particles, we know, um, are carcinogenic and can lead to lung cancer, and can lead to heart disease, um, whereas other types of particles are more benign, less uh, have less impact on the human body. And what this study found was that most of the particles on the London Underground are iron, from the rails, from the brakes, um, and from the wheels of the trains. And that is probably less impactful on the human body than um, carbon that we breathe in at the surface. But we also find very high levels of carbon on the London Underground as well. It's just as a share of the proportion of the pollution, it's a smaller proportion, but it's still very high. And it's still higher than the levels that we see um, at the surface. Which was the worst line? In our study, we found the central line to be worse. And that's the line that I travel on every day to commute to the LSE. Not just the central line, but the section of line that um, goes between um, between Tottenham Court Road and kind of Shepherd's Bush. The thick, hazardous haze covers a large part of Southeast Asia. Across Malaysia's capital, Kuala Lumpur, nearly 300 schools were ordered to close, like nearly 2,500 others across the country. The situation in Kuala Lumpur has been worsening for days. Last Friday, local hospitals distributed face masks to children and their teachers. The source of this smog in Malaysia, described in this clip from the broadcaster France 24 in 2019, was forest fires. These can be a significant source of air pollution in the region, resulting from the burning of forests to clear land for agriculture. Tom, who is an expert in forest and other types of wildland fires, explained more. Forest fires play an incredibly important role um, in air pollution in certain regions on our planet. Um, in places like Southeast Asia, particularly Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, it's the most important um, source of air pollution in these regions, especially during certain times of the year, the, the dry season, usually around August, September, October. This is the season when um, land that has been cleared for agriculture um, may, be, may experience fires, uh, often set on purpose to clear the land for a new crop or clear the land following deforestation to make way for new plantations. Uh, this particular region of our planet has a fairly unique 
type of soil. It's peat, which is incredibly carbon rich. We might associate peat with Ireland or Scotland or maybe Siberia. But tropical peat um, exists mostly in Southeast Asia, but also some parts of um, uh, Central Africa and uh, Central America as well. But the problem with peat is that it's, it's highly flammable. It contains a lot of carbon. It's about 58% carbon. And it's, uh, once it ignites, it's very difficult to put out. So some of these fires that are burning on land in Indonesia or Malaysia may burn for um, months. And I've attended fires um, as part of my research that have burned for six or seven weeks, producing huge amounts of particulate matter in the smoke, which then travels um, downwind of the fires to the populated areas of this region, highly densely populated areas. So we see a, an exposure of, um, we see many people exposed um, to this, this pollution from fires. So there's a connection between palm oil and air pollution in Southeast Asia. Could you say something about that? So a lot of the deforestation on tropical peatlands, this kind of unique ecosystem, it's normally uh, wet and waterlogged and swampy um, and, f and an incredibly carbon-rich environment, both in terms of the trees and the soil. A lot of the deforestation of this ecosystem is driven by the expansion of um, palm oil plantations in both Indonesia and Malaysia. That deforestation is often accompanied by um, land clearance fires. So it's more economically viable to clear the land using fire. It's very cheap. It's easy to get rid of all the material from the deforestation and expose the land ready for plantation. Um, the alternatives are quite expensive, such as towing the logs using chains, um, very heavy on manual labor. So fire is the most effective way of clearing the land. Not all oil palm is bad. It's it's just the oil palm that is driving deforestation on this particular type of ecosystem. Um, a lot of oil palm is grown on mineral soil, on land that has been plantations for over a hundred years, in which case it's a very efficient and good use of the land. And it's an incredibly important crop for development in this region. Uh, unfortunately, because of the peat soil, um, these fires uh, will will last for many weeks, contributing to um, a smog that can affect the whole of the Southeast Asia region. Um, sometimes we see Singapore with AQI levels of 300 to 400, which is dangerous for all um, all individuals and the advice would be to stay indoors. Schools have to close down. Occasionally the airport is affected um, by this air pollution as well. Often in the news we don't see the effects of on the people who are living closer to these fires. It, it, it becomes newsworthy when it crosses the Straits of Malacca and affects the major urban conurbations of Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. But measurements in cities like Jambi or Palembang um, which are cities on the island of Sumatra, which are very close to these deforestation fires, are often um, showing AQI levels that are literally off the scale. Um, often we'll see the level that reported from these air pollution stations at 2,000 or 3,000. And it's not because the AQI is 3,000, it's because it's a it's got up to the maximum level that the the, the air quality index scale had been set to. Um, because the air is so thick with smoke. And when you see videos from these cities and people can't see um, the other side of their living room indoors, um, you realize just how bad the situation can get um, from this particular type of air pollution.
Another less well-known type of air pollution is indoor air pollution. Sefi Roth explained. According to uh, several studies, we spend approximately 90% of our time uh, indoor, so we should really, really care about uh, the air quality in our uh, homes, offices, schools, and uh, all the indoor environments that we are tend to uh, spend time in. Now, the important thing is that air pollution, indoor air pollution, is not only a byproduct of ambient air pollution, the pollution uh, outside. There are many, many sources of uh, indoor pollution, including things like cooking stove, smoking, and substances of natural origin, such as radon. In fact, indoor air pollution is sometimes much, the concentration are much higher than pollution outdoors. So things like candles, for example, this is another source of uh, indoor air pollution. So our obsession with candles isn't doing us any good. But indoor air pollution in the developing world is a far greater threat to public health. I spoke to Dr. Uta Collier, Head of Energy at the NGO Practical Action, over Zoom. So most people, at least in the West, when they think of air pollution, they don't think of indoor air pollution. Why is cooking so problematic in this respect? Well, globally, we actually have around 3 billion people who cook with extremely dirty fuels. So it's, you know, firewood put on a three stone fire, or if they're very lucky, they might have a stove of sorts, but still using firewoods, a very inefficient way of cooking. So you get lots of the particulates then escaping from the stove or the fire. And if you do that in a hut, you can imagine you get a huge amount of smoke. And it's a significant problem for many, many people, and especially women in the developing world. I went on this biogas trip in Kenya, and they still had the old kitchen there as well. And I think they were using it for, you know, cooking certain things. So the old kitchen, which was often somewhere separately in the house or, or just in a shed, was often really dirty. Just, just full of soot, whereas the new kitchen with the biogas, well, looked fairly clean. So that was quite interesting. The biogas stoves they brought into the house itself, whereas the previous kitchen was often in, in a shed or an outhouse, just because of how dirty it was. And what kind of solutions are there? Well, unfortunately, like often with these kind of things, it's complicated. <laughs> Right. So, you know, we've got to accept that many of these people impacted by this problem are very poor. The reason they use firewood is because it's often freely available. So they might not have a, a they might not have the money to access other options. You know, we all cook with what with gas or with electricity. Well, a lot of these people don't have electricity. They might live in rural areas where something like liquid petroleum gas, you know, these canisters, they might not be available, but also they just wouldn't be able to afford it. So that's, that's a real problem that you can't either get it to people or they can't afford it. In other places, you know, especially in the sort of more urban areas where charcoal use has been a problem in many of these countries, that there is, well, especially when there have been government programs promoting LPG canisters and stoves, there is quite a lot of progress. I mean, countries like India are using a lot more of them now. So, you know, it's, 
we, we know we can do things. There's also some things I get quite excited about. If you think about in rural areas, a lot of people have cows. You can actually make biogas from the cow manure. I saw a really exciting project like that in Kenya. But again, it costs money. So all of this needs well, government or rather donor support, you know, big programs to get to these three billion people. So how do you get from cow dung to cooking fuel? Yeah, it's actually an amazingly simple system. So most of these people have two or three cows, which are just outside their house. Well, you just collect the cow dung in a kind of plastic container where which it can expand and the gas collects and then you just take that gas into the kitchen and it works perfectly well. And are these new ways of cooking accepted? Well, I think once people know they're there, they, are, they can get accepted. One of the problems we've seen in many places um, is that you, you get men trying to sell cooking solutions to women. The reality is in, in many countries, it's still women who cook. So the obvious thing, of course, is that you need some a woman to go to another woman's house and say, well, you know, this is how, you know, someone who understands how you cook, what you cook and what you need for cooking. But surprisingly, in many places that hasn't happened. So at Practical Action, we've got several programs working with women energy entrepreneurs in Kenya, but also in Nepal, where we help them build their businesses and they can then go out to these villages and actually talk to the women and understand their needs. And that seems to be working really well. And they've managed to increase their sales of cook stoves. They also produce what are called briquettes, which are often made from agricultural waste. So there is definitely a model there that works, but it takes time as well. You know, you need to create the awareness amongst people. And also we've got to accept that maybe there isn't just one simple solution. Just think about how you cook. You've probably got a microwave, you've got a toaster, you've got a gas stove. So people might need several solutions to make it work for them. So what needs to be done in order to tackle air pollution? Uta explained that in the case of clean cooking, a greater awareness and more money is essential for action. I think it's absolutely key that we get more global attention to this problem. People have been talking about air pollution in cities a lot, but you know the fact that we started this conversation saying, well, most people here in the West aren't very aware that it's such an issue for, for so many people, that, indoor air pollution. So this needs to get on the global agenda. The World Health Organization has tried to do this a little bit, but there needs to be more of it. And then that needs to also feed through to the national level. In all these countries where it is a problem, it's just not still not being taken seriously. I mean, of course, one of the issues we have, we often don't have any or not much health provision in these rural areas. So even if people fall sick, well, no one might actually know about it. So we need to collect more data again to understand how significant this problem is. And for example, at the moment, how it relates to uh, 
being susceptible to COVID, for example, as well. But I think it is really an issue of needing much greater global awareness. And then, linked to that, we need to throw more money at the problem. There have been estimates of something like 40 million going in to solve clean cooking, or, or dirty cooking, if you like. Well, 40 million US dollars is just nothing if you're trying to solve the problem that affects 3 billion people. You probably need to increase this by, well, by a factor of 10, if not more. And that needs to come from, from donors through new partnerships as well between donors and private sector and, and governments. Um, it won't be easy to do that, especially at the current time where, you know, the economy is under such strain, but, but we have to do it. Otherwise, people will continue to die. For Sefri Roth, governments should look at the role tax could play in reducing air pollution. In my view, uh, we should use market-based instruments, things like taxes. And uh, let me clarify what I mean here. So I'm a big believer in the powers of market, and I rarely think that government should uh, intervene in them. However, when we have a clear market failure, as we have here, I think that government must act. The economic problem with pollution is that it creates an external cost, what we call an economics and externality, that is not reflected in market prices. Government should correct this problem to allow market to operate efficiently. However, I think it's very important to do it right and take into account the potential distributional aspects of uh, using such uh, instruments. For example, taxes can be very regressive and this can hurt people with low income. Uh, so government should design policies that improve the environment by the same time uh, does not put additional economic stress on low income uh, households. And what would you tax? So I think that every place would require different uh, type of tax uh, based on on the sources of pollution. So if it's coming from uh, transportation, maybe we should uh, tax something associated with that. Here's Tom Smith. So tackling air pollution um, is very much dependent on the sources of air pollution. In a city like London, where most of the pollution is coming from transport, it's important to regulate the vehicle fleet. So that's something that the Mayor of London has been working on for years now, starting with the congestion charging zone and moving towards the ultra low emission zone um, that was that came into force just last year, I think. In other places on our planet, so take for example um, the region where I work in on forest fires, it's very important to avoid those fires. So uh, avoiding the drainage of land, the drainage of the peat which dries it out and makes it available to burn is probably one of the most important things you can do to avoid those fires in Southeast Asia, keeping the land wet. It's not particularly important the fact that we have these surface fires because they may last a couple of days burning the the material on the agricultural plantations, but what we want to avoid is the peat fires. So avoiding drainage and making sure um, that the water table is high is a really good and effective technique of avoiding air pollution in that particular region of the planet. The, the tube is a difficult one uh, because there are always going to be these sources of um, air pollution from mechanical wear between the, the wheels and the track. Uh, but again, the, the Mayor of London is now looking into ways uh, that you can scrub the tunnels and vacuum clean all of the particulates out of the air um, on a semi-regular basis, and that will help uh, contribute to lowering levels, hopefully, on the London Underground as well. And finally, I asked Rosamond what we should be doing to tackle the problem of air pollution. 
the first thing I can think of is number one, to take it seriously. Because just because you can't see something doesn't mean it isn't there. People's lives matter. I don't have all the solutions for it. And I don't think governments do either. And I think it is going to involve all of us, Sue, in, in the sense of behavior change. I think we all have to want to live and live healthy lives and to do our little bits. I think a combination of all of it. I'm not saying we need to be, transport needs to be down 90%, but there needs to be less, if you see what I mean. So something like wood burning for me is a no brainer. Um, that I would dearly love to see that banned and things like fires, you know, things that we can do that we're now in a modern age we actually don't need sort of wood burning st stoves so things like that and you know i am not asking the, the nurse or the carer who's got to travel from house to house to house to house to visit people to give up her car but she is one person there are many of us that do short journeys that are unnecessary we could probably rethink again so it's about some of us giving up some of the things we like and lockdown has showed me that when 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 we have to give up certain things we do do it sue before i thought there's no way we would give up but i have to look on the positives so we do have to give up some of the things we like in order for the air to be cleaner let's see what the future what the future holds but i hope the air quality um community we are able to show the public the relationship between COVID-19 and air pollution. And, to you know, it's always about getting the message out, not frightening people, but explaining to people. There's no point you, you and I having a good understanding and keeping the information to ourselves. Yeah, because, I mean, what parents, and I mean that in, in inverted commas, doesn't care about the health of their child? We all do. So of course they will and if it's affecting cognitive development um 1.1 uh, million children in this country have asthma um that's not what parents sign up for so yeah it's getting it out there but we're so busy sue and i think now we've all had to now would have been a great time to do an air pollution campaign and of course for rosamond tackling air pollution is not just a campaign it's a deeply personal issue a report by Professor Stephen Holgate, an expert on asthma and air pollution, found that air pollution exceeded EU limits throughout Ella's illness. It said that there was a real prospect that without unlawful levels of air pollution, Ella would not have died. I asked Rosamond if there was any comfort in understanding the role that air pollution played in her daughter's death. Sort of has made it harder in a way. And what I mean by that is... Um, you live near the South Circular, as I do, and you can imagine, I have thought at times, if I didn't live here, then maybe she may still be here. And I think as, as a mother, that's quite difficult. I'm not saying I am to blame for it, but you just feel, I can't believe that where we live, because one feels one's role as a mother is to protect your child. And obviously I bought the house where I lived, before she was even born and i like the area which i live on and i do at times struggle that 
where I live ultimately, if I'm being honest, um, contributed hugely to her not being here. That, that's quite hard to take. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Anna Bevan and me, Sue Windybank. Want to explore more about air pollution? This episode was based in part on the following research. Crime is in the air, the contemporaneous relationship between air pollution and crime by Malvina Brody, Sefi Roth and Lutz Sager, a discussion paper by ESA, Institute of Labour Economics. The long run economic consequences of high stakes examinations, evidence from transitory variation in pollution by Avraham Ebenstein, Victor Levy and Sefi Roth in the American Economic Journal, Applied Economics. Spatial variability of fine particular matter, PM 2.5 on the London Underground Network by Brynmore M. Sanders, James D. Smith, T.E.L. Smith, David Green and B. Barrett in the journal Urban Climate and review of emissions from smouldering peat fires and their contribution to regional haze episodes. Uki Hu, Nieves Fernandez Inez, T.E.L. Smith and Guillermo Rhein in the International Journal of Wildland Fire. Join us next time when we ask, can we afford the super rich? For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover.